We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Thursday, January 11th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's wonderful program, Marine Corps veteran and executive director of AMVETS, Joe Chanelli, will be in studio for the first time in 2018 anyway. And he's got a lot on his mind that we're going to talk about today, including the president's new executive order related to veterans and transition and suicide, and also how the federal government's new marijuana directives emanating from the Attorney General's office might affect veterans. Those subjects and more with Joe Chinelli this morning. And then later, we'll be joined by Air Force vet and founder-slash-CEO of the Wounded Paw Project, Ernesto Hernandez. The Wounded Paw Project is working to save the lives of dogs in high-kill shelters by training them to serve as service animals for veterans. He'll be live in studio to give us all the details on what sounds like a truly wonderful program. All that and more is coming up on the morning briefing for today, and it all starts now. Jake Hughes will join us in studio in a moment. It seems that one of our guests is here a little bit earlier than we had planned, which, you know what, with the traffic, the city traffic, that's something that you have to worry about. So it's always safe to be early. You know, I had that issue yesterday where we were taking my son to something and they told us, hey, 530. Well, we get there at 515 to figure, well, we got to do some stuff. It's the first time he's coming here. And they tell us, oh, no, no, no. You, 530 is when you do that stuff. And yeah, I don't like that. Tell me when I'm supposed to be someplace. Let me be early. If everybody else is going to be late, that's on them. Tell me the actual time to be there so that I don't end up spending an additional you know, 15 to 30 minutes sitting around and waiting. But what are you going to do? I mean, you understand why people do that. I also understand why people create art because it's beautiful. Sometimes has a meaning most of the time because it's also just kind of fun to do. Well, if you're an artist who wants to honor all who have served in the military, there's a contest for you as reported by our own Caitlin Kenny at connectingvets.com. And it's the Veterans Day National Committee looking for submissions for their 2018 National Veterans Day poster. The theme this year is the War to End All Wars. Focuses, of course, on World War I and its centennial commemoration of the end of that war, according to the VA's Vantage Point blog. Now, the winning poster is distributed to VA facilities and military installations, and it's also going to be the cover of the official program for the Veterans Day observance at Arlington National Cemetery. So this is a way for those aspiring artists out there or those military artists who just feel like this is a subject that would be near and dear to their heart to go ahead and get some eyes on their work. Because, again, winning poster distributed to VA facilities, military installations, and the cover of the official program for the Veterans Day observance at Arlington. That's a big deal. The deadline for the poster submissions is April 1st, 2018, and a selection subcommittee is going to pick the winner sometime in May. 
For more information on the guidelines, how to submit the contest announcement, we'll go to ConnectingVets.com and you'll see it. It's right there in our top five stories this morning. That'll change uh, later on today, but for now, it's up there in our top five stories and you will see the link. Click on it. And if you are out there, you've got an art idea, veteran or not, you know, you can go ahead and put it in there and figure out exactly what you want to do. Now, I am not the greatest artist. I mean, I, I can provide reasonable, reasonable facsimiles of various uh, things that are supposed to look I guess they look the way that they're supposed to look generally. That's what, that's what you're looking for in art. As far as detail and photorealism, uh, that is not necessarily uh, my forte. So, you know, that's, that's what you have to deal with when you're talking about, uh, when you're talking about artwork. Now, Jake Hughes has joined us live in studio. Jake, how is your artwork my artwork, my stick figures look like uh, mutants. Oh, wow. You can't even get the stick figure right? Nope. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I'm not, I can't do photorealism, but I can do a, a good stick figure or a, a decent little cartoon character. My mom got me a book once when I was little that taught you how to draw cartoon characters. And whoever the author of that book was, that's still the style that I'll draw little <laughs> cartoon characters in, which don't really look like any cartoon I've ever seen. But this new thing, Jake, which I was just talking about, Caitlin, who works here with us at ConnectingVets.com, she's uh, the spouse of a veteran. She had a story up on the site yesterday. There's a National Veterans Day poster contest. Really? Yeah. And this is actually through the Veterans Day National Committee. It's for the 2018 National Veterans Day poster. The theme is the war to end all wars focused on World War I. The winning poster distributed to VA facilities and military installations, and it's also going to be the cover of the official program for the Veterans Day observance at Arlington National Cemetery. That's cool. You're talking about, like, maybe the president will be there. I believe the president usually attends the Arlington uh, Veterans Day ceremony. So you're talking about having the program for uh, generals, uh, joint joint chiefs of staff, the president. I mean, this is it's a big deal, and it's it's open to anybody. So if you go to our website, connectingvets.com, you'll see that in our top five stories. And hey, you know, submit it in there. And then when you win, tell them you heard about it on the morning briefing. Exactly. Mention Eric and Jake. Yeah, exactly. Because if it weren't for us, you wouldn't have gotten that poster made. Exactly. We're like uh, we're like your producers. We're your uh, your uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, you, you, oh, oh, you know what? In the uh, in the art world, there's a certain thing like uh, your patrons. There you go. We're the ones who who've brought your work to the world by telling you about a story that someone else wrote <laughs> on a website. But it, we're important. I don't yeah, think we're important in the process. Yeah, I don't. But I don't think there's any money involved. No, so we don't need no, official no. producer credits. Only no. if if you end up making, you know, six figures off of it, then Jake and I will take 10 percent. Yeah. Or 20. Whatever you're comfortable with. Exactly. The higher we're, the we're, number, we're flexible. The higher the number, the better. But World War One being the theme, because, of course, you know, we had uh, the World War One Centennial Commission on several times in 2017 talking about the. 100th anniversary of the U.S. entry into World War One. Well, the U.S. was only in World War One for about a year, a little bit longer. And, uh, of course, Veterans Day, November 11th, the 11th day, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month is Armistice Day. That's where World War One came to an end uh, with the signing of the Armistice. So this year is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. So we just finished the 100th anniversary of the start of the U.S. involvement in World War One, and then this year will be the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. Oh, that's nice. 
a war that raged for a few years without us. Um, the U.S. under Woodrow Wilson had a kind of non-involvement policy. Uh, that started falling apart with things like the sinking of the Lusitania and other, th- other aspects that kind of dragged us into the war. And really marked the entry of the World War, the entry, the entry of the U.S. into World War One. Marked the entry of the U.S. onto the world stage as a true world power. Uh, was the beginning of the modern era of warfare and the modern era of politics, and re redrew the maps of Europe and, by extension, the rest of the world with European colonies and everything like that. I mean. If you look at a, a pre-World War I map of Europe and a post-World War I map of Europe, there are a lot of countries after World War I that did not exist prior to the war because you were dealing with essentially kingdoms. And that's the weird thing about World War I when you do the research into it. Everybody was related. The leaders on both sides were and oftentimes first cousins. The Kaiser of Germany was a cousin of the uh, the King of England. I mean, it, it was it was so tightly interconnected and wound. You wonder how. Uh, well, maybe not. I was going to say you wonder how family could get into uh, draw the world into that sort of chaos, and then you think, no, no, I understand why yeah. family would make that even more likely. It really was the end of uh, not colonialism that really ended in World War Two, but World yeah. War One was pretty much the end of. The modern of the ancient kingdoms. Yeah, that really saw the rise of uh, democracy and stuff like that. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, where you where you lost, you still had figureheads in some countries. I mean, like look at England, where you still have a queen today. She doesn't have any real power over there. It's not like the Queen of England is going to be able to say disband the House of Lords and House of Commons, and I will be running everything. No, it's not going to happen. They're a, they're kind of a constitutional monarchy type of deal now. But pre World War One. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, of course, that's where the uh, the war started with the uh, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. You had the the German Empire, the Prussian Empire. You had all these different kingdoms led by you know familial succession, and that came to an end for the most part in World War One. Also, the country on the losing side, Germany, of course, struggled mightily. The armistice in World War One was specifically developed by the winners, which would be France, the United Kingdom, the United States. The United States served as kind of a mediator because we didn't have those close ties. Like nobody, you know, Woodrow Wilson wasn't a cousin of uh, the Kaiser. Right. So we were looked at as kind of this uh, third party, even though we were on the side of the victors. Everybody kind of agreed. But the the French in particular wanted to punish the Germans for uh, World War One. I, I think understandably. I mean, if you look at what happened to France during World War One, it's it it became a, a hellscape. It's a nightmare when you look at what happened, and that there are still large swaths of territory in France where you cannot go because there's so much unexploded ordnance and chemicals from World War One still there in the ground. You know, it's uh, it's certainly a significant issue and one that uh, one that caused really led to World War Two because of the way that the armistice was set up. Germany was punished. The Germans ended up, uh, you know, basically struggling to get by and there was no money, which kind of allowed for a madman like Hitler to come in promising lots of things and build up himself. You know, first he went to prison, but then after he got out of prison, he had a lot of things to say to a lot of people that were very hungry to hear something that made it sound like the problems they were having were not their fault. In fact, the other people were the ones at fault. Yeah. 
So a lot of lessons, a lot of history lessons that come out of World War One. And while it wasn't as wide ranging, wasn't as long, wasn't quite on the same scale as World War Two, it's just as important, perhaps more so, because, again, the beginning of modern warfare, automatic weaponry being used on, on a large scale for the first time. When you learn about the Germans first coming through Belgium at the kickoff of World War One and attacking these fortresses in Belgium, these ancient fortresses, heavy, heavy, thick fortresses, being able to attack them with artillery eventually, these huge artillery guns that they had, and destroy these ancient fortresses that had stood forever and were built to withstand anything, weren't built to withstand modern weaponry. But before that artillery got there, when the Germans were just trying to come on and straight attack at these fortresses, there were machine gun nests set up. So they were just mowing down the Germans to the point where eventually the Germans were able to take cover behind mounds of bodies of their fellow soldiers that had been mowed down by those guns. So I, really an absolutely fascinating time. Over the last couple of years, it's come a little bit more to the forefront through something that Jake and I have talked about recently, and that's video games. Yeah. Battlefield 1 is uh, the latest in a series of video games from Electronic Arts that have dealt with World War II, they've dealt with modern warfare, they've dealt with, uh, there was actually one, I think it was called Battlefield Hardline, which was uh, kind of a cops and robbers sort of game. It's an online game with a campaign that you can play as a single player where you get put onto one team or the other. Say it's a, a World War II game, you could be assigned to the Japanese Empire or the, uh, you know, the, the Allies, the Americans, the British, somebody like that at the beginning of each round. And then you, uh, you compete and you try to destroy the other team, essentially. The latest one, Battlefield 1, is set in World War One. The maps are... You know, photorealistic, they show you the devastation that World War I wreaked upon the European countryside. It also shows that there were, you know, some there's some weapons that you use in that game which are not that effective, not that great, and other ones that are almost like modern weaponry, which is what you had a lot in World War I. You had a lot of guys using bolt-action single-shot rifles up against automatic machine gun emplacements. And 100 years is a long time. It's a drop in the bucket, if you think about it, in the grand scheme of things. And think about how much it's changed since World War I. We can look at what they did then, tactically. Look at the weapons that they used and think, my God, how barbaric. But at the time, that was the cutting edge of technology. That was the cutting edge of everything when it came to warfare. And again, not as big, not as well-known, not as many movies about it. But I think just as important, if not more so, to the evolution of world history than World War II was. So uh, we, uh, you know, we celebrate the end of World War I this year. And that poster contest, you know, it's open to everybody. I would like to see a veteran being the one to create that poster. The fact that it's open to everybody, you know, that's fantastic, Jake. But... How much would you like to see an actual veteran artist be the one to create that poster for World War One? It'd be very poetic and very cool. I'm going to send this article to a couple of uh, top flight veteran artists that I know and see what they think. People like uh, my buddy Nick, who was a Marine, you know, who eh, Marines first job, first and foremost, is to uh, be able to destroy everything that they see and kill everyone that they need to. Uh, although Nick's secondary job was drawing pretty pictures and he was amazing at it. 
I went through a course with this guy, the digital multimedia course, and there was a lot of art involved in it, essentially, and creating flash pages and movies and stuff. And I'm having trouble doing, as you said, stick figures and animating them. He's creating characters from his mind that look like something out of a movie and making it look like they're walking like real people. That's always amazing to me, the artist's ability to be able to just take an image from their head and just be able to perfectly transfer it onto paper. Yeah. It, it, it fascinates me. It, it's, it's interesting because I am a creative person, I think, in that I have uh, interesting ideas I can create. I can create a character. I can give you their mindset. I can tell you how they talk, what they talk, what makes them interesting. But then if you were to ask me to like, yeah, draw what that person looks like. Oh, oh no, I can't do that. And the people who can, it's a discipline. It's a creative discipline, but them knowing different ways that, that lines work and how that's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it, it, this sounds like a joke. It really is an art form in that it really, you have to know it's a lot more than just me draw a pretty picture. There's a lot more to it. You heard it here first, folks. According to Jake Hughes, art is an art form. <laughs> hey, shut up. I just I had to say something. That's true. Me no word good today. You know, we're going to be talking to the Wounded Paw Project here in just a little while. In fact, I think the Wounded Paw Project is here a little bit ahead of schedule. But there's another story relating to our four-legged friends. I'm a dog person. Jake's a dog person. I guess there are people out there who are cat people. I don't understand that at all, partially because I'm allergic to them. So, you know, I just hate cats. I I don't, you know, I, I, I just, I've never had great experiences with them. I am allergic, but when I take my allergy pills and I'm around them, it's like, what, what is this? You know what it is? It's like a, uh, it's like a statue that moves. It's something that just doesn't want to interact with you. You might want to interact with it. Uh, There's not much. that's going to come out of that. Dogs are more my uh, speed. We've got a, Big goofy dog who's a a delight and a a valued member of our family. Well, we had a story a while back by our own Jonathan Copanger about the VA conducting invasive testing on dogs. There were some mistakes made uh, that brought that to light, essentially, where uh, people didn't check what they were supposed to check and some dogs lost their lives, essentially. Um, You can find that story on ConnectingVets.com. It's called Mr. Secretary, Why is the VA Abusing Dogs? It was on October 4th, 2017 that that story came out. Well, now, three months later, basically, Jonathan has found that the VA continues to conduct that testing. Uh, The VA secretary wrote an opinion piece on the subject in USA Today in 2017 uh, and stated that the VA had the strong support of veterans groups on the subject. But according to Jonathan, that support... It's eroding pretty quickly. So uh, fighting against that statement, he says, is disabledveterans.org founder, Air Force veteran Benjamin Krause, saying that the VA has failed to name a single veteran-focused medicine medical advancement that has ever resulted from dog testing in nearly 100 years of VA research. Spending taxpayer money on unproductive programs like this is inexcusable when so many veterans are still fighting with VA to obtain the basic medical care and health benefits that they deserve. If you can't prove that this testing in, as Mr. Krause says, he says in a hundred years, you can't prove a single thing that's come out of it. That's a bit of a problem. Yeah. I mean, most science labs these days, they don't operate on dogs. They operate on mice or if they have to get something closer to humans, they'll use pigs. 
Yeah, well, of course there and and there's been testing in the past on monkeys. You remember the movie? Did you ever see the movie Project X with Matthew Broderick? No. It was about a guy who gets a job working at a lab where they're testing on monkeys to teach them. It's actually a military related movie because it's the government trying to teach the uh the monkeys to essentially fly these weaponized aircraft uh, that would be nuclear weapons so that, you know, you're not losing a pilot. You're losing a, an ape, essentially, that's flying the plane. Um, that movie, as I when I was a kid, struck me very hard. I'd be interested to watch it today and see how well it holds up, if at all. It was uh, It was a bit of a dark movie. I mean, it was kind of a comedy as you might expect with Matthew Broderick being in it, but it was also uh, had some very dark themes in it. As far as animal testing goes, um, I love animals. I absolutely do. As I said, we have our dog. He's a valued member of our family. I also understand the value that animal testing can have. Um, there is, there are rules and regulations against testing on people, even if they volunteer for it. Now, I think you should do away with that. If someone says, you know what? I want to be a test subject for this. should let them do it. I'm for letting people do whatever the heck it is that they think they should do. And if someone wants to be a test subject, well, by all means. And if it puts their life at risk, make sure that they understand that. And if they still want to do it and have all their mental faculties about them, go for it, go for it. You know, and, and let's also offer that to people who are on death row. Hey, you're on death row. You can sit around waiting for a while and then go out there through the electric chair of this. But hey, we've also got these medical experiments that may or may not kill you. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, just an idea because. Yeah, no, no, that'd be that'd be fine. But you have to offer them some incentive. Like, you know, if it doesn't kill you, you're you, you don't die. I don't know about that. Maybe uh, maybe if it doesn't kill you, uh, you get extra ice cream with your last meal or something like that. You know, <laughs> wow, make it worth it's cold. Month. Hey, you know what? When you're on death row, cold is all there is. The VA uh, is expending significant time, money, staff, research space and other resources uh, that's uh, veterans advocacy group said in a letter to representative uh, Titus Dina Titus from Nevada. Uh, she's got a bipartisan effort to stop the unnecessary experiments on dogs. You know, I'd like to talk to somebody from the VA and, and, and hear what they would say about that, but it, it doesn't seem that there is much that they've said about it or that they've said, you know, like that, that, that much has been gained from it again, as disabledveterans.org founder, air force vet, Benjamin Krause says the VA has failed to name a single veteran-focused medical advancement that has ever resulted from dog testing in nearly 100 years of research. That's significant. So the VSOs uh, that currently support defunding and ending the experiments include Vets First, Retired Enlisted Association, American Military Retirees Association, Military Veterans Advocacy, Jewish War Veterans of the USA, United States Army Warrant Officers Association, Veterans for Peace, DisabledVeterans.org, and Veterans for Common Sense. Veterans for common sense. What are they? I mean, I've never heard of that, but uh, that's uh, that seems. I'm gonna look into them. That seems counterintuitive. Yeah, <laughs> none of us veterans want common sense. We want what we believe to be what there is, and that's it. The end. <laughs> well, we do believe that you're listening to the morning briefing, and uh, if you're hearing this, then you definitely are. Joe Chanelli, executive director of AMVETS, coming up, as well as Ernesto Hernandez from the Wounded Paw Project. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic show today, even though, Jake, I am sore, man. 
Yeah, you told me about that. That you uh, you tried to work out yes, or you did work out. I yesterday. know I did. I had my first uh, my first official Brazilian Jiu Jitsu class at Ground Control Columbia. That's the place up near my house, and uh, it had a great training partner there. This guy Kevin, who's been doing it for a few years, and apparently competes all the time, uh, who kind of took it easy on me, I think, and allowed me to take the many breathers that I needed to. But I'll tell you this. At the beginning, you do the warm-up where there's uh, you know, some running and jogging and, and then running backwards and then side to side and then hip movement things. That lasts for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes. <laughs> By the end of that 10 minutes, I'm sucking wind and I'm like, oh, no. This oh, is going to suck. This is going to hurt. And it did, but in a good way, in the way that you're like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that my body's supposed to be doing. So, I, you know, as I said, I went to uh, an antique store during a break from uh, this tavern that my family went to on New Year's weekend, stepped onto an antique scale, and the number that I saw, that's not a number that I'd ever seen before <laughs> in regards to me. It's a number yeah. I'd seen in regards to heavyweight fighters. I'm at the point now where I'm almost scared to step on a scale. Yeah. It's like it's like blissful ignorance for me at this point. I know I need to lose weight, and I'm watching what I eat, and at some point I'm going to start working out. I swear to God. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just it. I don't want to know how bad the damage is until I've been on the process a little bit. I, I stepped on a scale, and let me tell you, yeah, it's even if you're not scared of it when you get on. The fear that washes over you as you get off. As those numbers yeah. go up, 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 oh, up, up, boy. up. And, and overall, last night, though, a lot of fun. It was exhausting by the time I got home. I was like, is it bedtime yet? No, it's only 8 p.m. Um, you know, a little little lump on my knee, a little bit of mat burn on, like, my uh, my big toes, both of my, uh, my, t- by my big toe knuckles, but otherwise trying to start getting back into shape. And if you're a veteran out there, hey, check out ConnectingVets.com. We have some good ideas for you on how to get back in shape. And other wonderful things. Joe Chanelli, Executive Director of AMVETS, after this. Morning Briefing! Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, January 11th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer on the other side of the glass. I don't think he's taken off his Houston Astros World Series champs hat since he bought it while on vacation back home in Houston a couple weeks ago. But we are a team of veterans and those closely related to veterans, as in military spouses, working every day to bring you the latest and greatest news, information, even entertainment from the world of the military and veteran community. And we do it at ConnectingVets.com. Entercom's ConnectingVets.com, Connecting Vets every day. And I know you'd like to be sitting there at work just refreshing the page every 15 minutes or so and watching everything new that we put up there. The bosses might not appreciate that. So here's what I recommend. Follow us on social media. Little click on your phone, little click on your mouse, and your life will change for the better because you'll be kept up to date on everything that we are putting out there coming from our website, coming from other websites that have great information that we want to make sure that you get. Again, we are at Connecting Vets on all social media, so be sure to follow us there. We're now joined live in studio by two representatives of the Wounded Paw Project. What is the Wounded Paw Project? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Wounded Paw Project is working to save the lives of dogs in kill shelters by training them to serve as service animals for veterans. 
and by doing that, perhaps save some veteran lives as well. They are live in studio now to give us all the details on what sounds like a truly wonderful program. Please welcome Wounded Paw Project founder and CEO Ernesto Hernandez and Executive Director slash Navy veteran Greg Sipple. Good morning, gentlemen. How are we today? Good morning, Eric. Thanks. Well, I want to first start off by introducing the two of you and talking a little bit more about your backgrounds. Ernesto, as I just mentioned, an Air Force veteran. I know actually an Academy graduate from out there in Colorado Springs. Tell us a little bit about your service, when you joined, where you served, and what you did while you were in the Air Force. Sure. I'm a Mustang. I enlisted on February 1st, 1988. Uh, had one very short enlistment time of 18 months, followed by being accepted to the Air Force Academy. Went to the preparatory school first, graduated in the class of 1994, red hot. From there, started out as an acquisition officer, had a small stint in aviation. Unfortunately, 9-11 happened, and my life changed, and I was detailed to different agencies in the national capital regions, and most of my career after 9-11 was deployed to the hot areas. Right, and uh, there's certainly no shortage of those after September 11th. And during the time that you were serving after September 11th, I happen to know that you're also a Purple Heart recipient. So you're someone who not only went to those hot spots, but obviously uh, had to do some stuff while you were there. And we're glad that you've made it back and that you've started this wonderful program with the Wounded Paw Project. You're also involved with the Military Order of the Purple Heart. Is that right? I am a member of Military Order of the Purple Heart, and I was a former executive director slash national adjutant. Right. So involved in the VSO community, uh, I met Ernesto very briefly one night shortly after I moved to our nation's capital and first heard about the Wounded Paw Project. I'm glad that we've now been able to get you into the studio. Now, Greg Sipple, you (laughs) joined the right service, the United States Navy, and of course served in there. So uh, retired commander in the United States Navy. So tell us a little bit about your time in the Navy, where you're from originally, when you joined and what you did. Well, uh, I'd like to say one thing about Ernesto's service, and I'm glad you pointed it out, Eric, is that he is a Purple Heart recipient, and he's going to be very magnanimous, but he received that in a very heroic actions and um, saving the lives of others. So um, I think that's a great testament to uh, the sort of moxie and uh, sort of individual he is. Now, my background is Navy. I was a Naval Flight Officer in the S3 Viking, uh, Ah. so I had a lot of fun doing that, but... uh, Ultimately, I ended up going in the reserves after 12 years of active duty and then stayed 16 years because of 9-11. And uh, from there, I had a lot of exposure in the private sector where I worked as uh, business development, business strategy, and uh, was a consultant uh, for some top companies. And then ultimately, I went into business for myself, but I really wasn't happy until I found the uh, nonprofit sector. And I was a uh, president and CEO of another uh, dog organization helping veterans, but uh, ultimately, Ernesto and Wounded Paw Project is what captured my eye, and I really wanted to be part of this organization. Now, you mentioned something interesting there, serving in the reserves, and I think one of the interesting things that we've found from our retired reservists in particular are people who who have served in the reserves for an extended period. There's almost two transition periods, one where you go from active duty to the reserves, then the other one when you go from the reserves to uh, the civilian life when you're done. What can you tell us about both of those transition periods, and what were the big lessons learned for you in transitioning, one, from active duty, and then two, from the reserves? Well, uh, Eric, you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it really is a unique experience for us, because, and then we'll even throw another one in there, because we'll get recalled, and then we'll have to stop our civilian lives go play military, and then return again to civilian life. And I've gone through that cycle several times. Uh, It's a challenge, but I was uh, fortunately well-versed in how to make that transition successfully. Prior to the transition assistance programs that are now in place, it really was a terrible way to leave the service. It was kind of, thank you, here's the door, and and out you went. And uh, 
It was up to you to find your way. I had some background and had some help through people who were executive headhunters and it turned me on to somebody who was in the career outplacement business who ironically her husband was a former Marine. So uh, she understood my background and was able to articulate to the point that I was doing my interviews and not coming off very military-esque. And uh, <laughs> I, I removed acronyms from my lexicon. And <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. You know, when we talk about all the different acronyms, even inter-service, it can be a problem. If you go up to a soldier and start using Navy acronyms, they're going to look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. And then have a young soldier ask a young sailor what their MOS is, and the sailor's going to look at him and be like, I, month of service? I, June, I guess. I don't know. What, what are you talking about? Now, Ernesto, let's talk about your transition. Of course, serving in the Air Force, enlisted, and then officer over 20 years. What do you remember most about leaving the Air Force, and what was the big lesson learned for you in your transition? Well, mine is very unique. Uh, I was actually going to retire where the Air Force med boarded me at the last minutes because of the injuries I sustained in Iraq. Uh, that surfaced, so I ended up getting some surgeries, but the Air Force didn't know what to do with me because you don't have too many living Air Force Purple Heart recipients. So it was a very unique transition, but at the same time, it was very seamless. There was a program that DOD and the VA integrated called IDIS, Integrated Disability Evaluation System, which for me made a very seamless and transition out and getting my benefits. Hmm. So I have worked with the United States Air Force, mainly here at Andrews Air Force Base, to give them those lessons learned. They do have a transition unit now. They did it when I was going through it right. to ensure that veterans or soon-to-be veterans are getting the right proper education, training, and that transition out scope for them. You know, there, there's been improvement in that area, certainly. I think even since when I got out. Because when I got out in 2011, uh, I was in Afghanistan, found out I'd be getting out, not by choice. The Navy was cutting people, and they said, hey, you're going to be one of them. And I went, All right, well, I guess. Went back to Guam, went through the transition assistance program. And what I found during my transition assistance program, you know, two weeks to uh, prepare for ending 13 years of it being your everyday life, not necessarily going to be enough. And then also... It seemed that most people there were trying to tell me to get a job with the government, and I had no interest in getting a job with Amen. the government. So it was like, <laughs> well, I know you guys all think I should go work for the VA or DOD or the Merchant Marines or whoever, but that's not at all what I'm going to do. But it was nice to dress in civilian clothes for two weeks anyway. Um, I think there has been great improvement, at, at, You know, as you said, Greg. There was nothing almost when you got right. out. Now, Ernesto, you talked about when you got out and they did have some stuff and now it just keeps growing. And I think there's a greater understanding of the fact that veterans go from one very specific lifestyle to another. And if they're not prepared for it, it can lead to some problems. There are a lot of problems that can be addressed in a lot of ways. One way that we can address specific issues that our wounded veterans have, whether it be physical, whether it be mental, is through service dogs. And what Wounded Paw Project is doing is absolutely fascinating and something that when I told my wife, as she's a big rescue dog um, proponent, our dog came from a shelter that had lost their lease and we went there and said, we're getting a dog. We may not have room for a dog right now as we had a couple others, but we're going to save one of these animals. The Wounded Paw Project is taking animals from kill shelters specifically and training them to be service dogs. Tell me, Ernesto, where this idea came from and why this wasn't something that had been thought about by people prior to the Wounded Paw Project. Well, let me start with this first. Uh, we adopted a dog named Daisy, and really I call myself the founder. She is. I'm the co-founder of the organization. <laughs> She's a lab pit mix. And so when my injury started surfacing, 
uh, this started back in 2012, right before I got med boarded. I wasn't able to get out of bed. And she recognized something in her, in me, excuse me, such as a puppy that of hers. And she started literally babying me. And then when I couldn't get out of bed, she started throwing her tug toy onto the bed. First time I thought it was okay, cute. Second time I was annoyed. And third time I kind of snarked at her a little bit. But she did it a fourth time. And she was like, hey, knucklehead, grab it. I'm going to help you get out of bed. So when I saw that, I couldn't believe it. So I started giving some small taskings. And I noticed there's something in a rescue that is a little bit different in a pure bed is that they want to serve immediately because they don't want to go back to a shelter. Mm. A shelter is a jail to them. So that's what started Wounded Paw Project initially. And we have grown since then. There are some people, as I understand it, Greg, that don't believe in, you know, shelter animals, rescue dogs being used as service animals. Uh, I don't know exactly why that is, but I'm sure you can give me a a little bit of the information on why someone might think this should be dogs that are bred from birth to be service dogs and trained that way. Why do people think that? Well, Eric, uh, very nail on the head once again is I came from an organization like that. And one of the reasons why I jumped on board with Wounded Paw Project is because I also felt that way, is that you could bring a, a, a dog out of a shelter, make that into a service dog. The problem with going for the top end, absolutely perfect specimen is you're instilling a lot of cost into the process. You have to breed, you have to select, uh, and then it takes years to get that, two years at least to get that dog to that level. You can grab that shelter dog, you can train it the necessary tasking that is needed for the veterans and still be a remarkable animal. And as Ernesto alluded to, the dogs are so appreciative. There's something unique about those animals that they have the ability and they're intuitive to study you as a human being, know what you need better than clinicians and everybody else. And that's why I think the rescue dogs are such a uh, grateful bunch to be in part with a veteran, I just seen so many good things happen from that, that it's, it's very archaic thinking to say that you needed a purebred dog solely for this purpose. Most veterans only need that companionship. It's interesting that you talk about the intuition. With animals, we've seen in natural disasters that they have a sense. They know something's coming. When I was stationed in uh, Greece on the island of, uh, of Crete, there would be power outages that would come, and you know when you knew they were coming? You could hear the dogs howling before the power went out. They could tell that something was about to happen, even as simple as the electricity going out on the island, right. these brownouts that we would have throughout the day. Ernesto, what goes into the training of a service dog to kind of hone those natural instincts to be able to help a veteran specifically? What is the process of training a rescue dog to turn into a service dog? Sure. Uh, really, it's... A- there's no formula for it. It's really dependent on the veteran. So whatever the veterans needs us, we look for. Initially, we go to any kill shelter, local organization. We're actually nationally. We get them out of Harris County. We get them out of San Antonio, uh, out of uh, Miami-Dade, which is horrible. And we just basically you can just tell there's something about that dog that has a natural instinctive to want to serve. And from that, we hone it. So we do do the basic obedience of you got to make sure that it's not aggressive, it's not uh, – attacking it's not marking property it's not doing the stuff that it shouldn't be doing and from there really it's really they take over we just help them get into the next step so i'll let greg a little bit with this one uh, add to it (laughs) well i I appreciate that yeah the uh, dogs are are interesting as people are uh and is unique and different and varied and so when you go at it with a open mindset and you play off their strengths, use what they are, what is their motivation. If they are treat motivated, food motivated, 
use that as a reward. Uh, if they are play motivated, you use that as a reward. And then you can also start adding on to those the prerequisite skills necessary for that to become a fantastic service dog. And another thing that you brought up earlier was the financial benefits of yes. this, which l- let's look at the, again, the perfect specimen service dog. I think when you ask someone to close their eyes and describe a service dog, they're going to think like German Shepherd standing at attention, ready to leap into action and help. They are expensive to breed when you come to these purebred yes. dogs specifically. The training is expensive and extensive. And you don't know, just because they were well-bred doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make a great service dog. Many of those dogs don't make it through the training. Whereas with a rescue dog, you would have those same issues. Some of them you might think like, yeah, this dog might be good. And then it turns out that they're not. Well, you haven't spent the many, many thousands of dollars. And while it doesn't matter to me what it costs to help our wounded warriors, finances matter. Costs matter. And if something's too expensive, it makes it untenable. This is a way that's able to save money, save lives of these poor dogs and kill shelters, and save the lives of veterans, right, Ernesto? It is. Uh, let me give you an example. The average cost is about twenty to twenty-five thousand. Greg can give you a little bit more from his past experience, but we just had a call three weeks ago from an Amish community. Not a call in the sense of a cell phone. I was going to say, what are they? Hey, 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 what are <laughs> they, they, they doing over there? Yeah, they mailed a note to someone who finally called us. Smoke signal. Exactly. So there was a dog that was too friendly. So myself, and we do have a trainer, and I'll give a shout-out to Dominion Canine. is an excellent Air Force canine trainer by trade. Uh, we went out to visit a dog, a perfect dog. First day we did is got a health check. Uh, right now we invested probably $3,000. I think we'll probably not even be close to the $5,000 mark, so a quarter of the cost. And we're taking it out to New Mexico, right outside of Albuquerque, for a Vietnam veteran that needs some assistance with dropped items, retrieval, and a lot of companionship. So we're, like, so we're hoping to keep the cost at least half or maybe even sometimes at a at 75% off. You just said uh, 5000 is compared to 25000 right. That's even less than a quarter. That's a fifth. Yeah. I, I'm not very and good at math. And it's even worse if you really look at the numbers, Eric. I'll tell you what. Um, my last organization uh, sort of envisioned itself as the Harvard, Stanford, you name it, of dog training. And the bottom line was the expense was tremendous, but just like uh, – a higher education, you can go to the state university and get uh, an incredible degree and be, if not better, in a lot of ways because you're a little more well-rounded and exposed to a different sort of universe. Same with the dogs. And we actually had costs that exceeded $30,000 per dog. Oh, boy. And, and again, when it comes to, since you worked for an organization that did that, Who's paying that? Where's that money coming from? Is that coming from donations? Is it coming from the people receiving the dogs? Who bears the brunt of the cost? Well, you know, it's the it's always the kindness and generosity of donors and people who care. Uh, but you have a fiduciary responsibility to those individuals to do this in a fiscally responsible manner. And that's where I ultimately drew the line. And, and I realized that we could do this in a much more cost-effective manner and not to uh, commoditize the dogs in any way, shape, or form. But if you look at it from a manufacturing throughput standpoint, it is just a more efficient process to use these rescued animals. And when all is said and done, let's say that animal doesn't succeed, you still have a far better rescue and adoptable animal than you did before. So these dogs, we're improving their lives while they're improving our lives. 
process improvement is a huge thing. I, I know this. My wife is a Six Sigma black belt, oh. so oh. she would look at that and say, like, oh, you're cutting costs from twenty five to 30000 <laughs> down to five, and through that, you're able to get five service dogs out for every one through the other organization. If you present that to the donors, just like you would to a board or investors, which one are they going to prefer? Now, have we been able to show, and we're speaking with Ernesto Hernandez, founder and co-founder and CEO, along with his dog, Daisy, of the Wounded Paw Project, and Greg Sippel, the executive director of Wounded Paw Project. Have we been able to to document this and show that, yes, this does work, that there are these successful service dogs that came from shelters, that came from the rescue dog community? And if you're able to show that and prove that, well, that doesn't seem to leave a leg to stand on for organizations that say what you guys are doing doesn't work, does it? By this spring, we'll have all the data for you. We're compiling it. We're a very young organization, but we have a years or decades and decades of experience. I've been working with dogs all my life, but it's a 51 c 3 We're barely here in our second year, Mark, but we are in our third fiscal year. So the answer to your question is yes. I'll have every empirical data available to you to show that with the throughput that we're putting through. We have several dogs in a pipeline. Uh, we're using veterans to assist us. We have a Navy SEAL right now out of Maryland working with one, one beautiful dog out there. So, If people have an idea of, you know, they know a shelter near them that's a kill shelter and that's having trouble, or they know a shelter like the one in Long Island where we got our dog Walker, which was losing its lease and had a bunch of wonderful dogs. He had a brother that unfortunately we couldn't take with us as well. Um, Can people reach out to you guys and let you know like, hey, this shelter here might have something and they might be willing to work with you. Uh, Can people do that? And also, how do you build those relationships with the shelters who I would imagine are more than happy to have their dogs not being euthanized, but instead being useful? Yes, we worked with kill shelters to save the dogs. And we also work with not no kill shelters to place them because unfortunately, there's too much of a demand for them and too much supply out there. There's too many dogs. And as I mentioned earlier, Miami Day is one of the most horrible organizations for kill shelters in New York as well, as you're aware of. Yeah. So, yes, please reach out. Our hashtag is at Saving a Paul. Uh, reach out to us. And if we can't take the dog immediately, we'll work with the organization. So it's Last Chance Animal Rescue out of Maryland, and it can house a dog for us or find a foster family for it. And you guys are at Saving a Paw on Twitter, Facebook, social media, at Saving a Paw, not Wounded Paw Project, but it's the organization is the Wounded Paw Project. Have there been any true success stories that really come to mind when you talk about what you've been able to do already, Ernesto? <laughs> there's many. Uh, but the thing is, there's, uh, I'm always cautious with this because we had some folks that really don't want to go on a record this time, so right. I'm very careful. But we do have a couple that's going to be coming up the pipeline, but I'll use me as an example. Right. Uh, I had a daisy really changed my life. Uh, I was that guy drinking too much. I was putting my hands through walls. And she's actually figured something to calm me down. You know, here I am, an academy grad, A-type personality. You know, I don't think I have the invisible wounds that I did. Mm. So I can personally speak to it that, yes. And I have a lot of friends out there, uh, SEALs in particular, that are they could be a testament to it. And they'll go on a record here, hopefully here in the next couple of weeks. It's, it's huge for people to be able to do that. And I totally understand those who don't want to, those who don't want the attention, Correct. those who just want to live a normal life. But there are going to be people who are willing to speak out and it's going to be able to uh, really shine a light on, on what you're doing. And, and if it's working as you say it is, again, this is going to, it, it might change the game when it comes to service dogs because we really have uh, a bit of an epidemic in this country of dogs being at shelters. It was amazing to me when we were um, looking for a dog after we one of our dogs passed away. Um, 
looking around at the the government shelter basically out there in Suffolk County, Long Island, mm-hmm. looking at the individual shelters. There's a place called the Little Shelter on Long Island that's very well known up there. Uh, the one that we found that was essentially in a strip mall out in rural Suffolk County where wow. there were... I don't know, 75 dogs that they had in there, some cats, a couple of birds. I mean, there are a lot of people doing great work to try and help these animals, but the number of animals, it's staggering how many of them there are out there, and this could make a dent in that while also helping our veteran community. Correct, and back to your original statement, yes, we are going to change the model. We're not going to fail. Secondly, there's over 100 million homeless animals throughout the United States, and only 10% end up in shelter, and half of those are destroyed yearly. Hmm. Mm. And it's 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 incredibly unfortunate, and and it can be even infuriating. As uh, as a Navy guy who spent some time in Norfolk, I would see the building of a certain four letter organization that claims to be for uh, treating animals ethically. Yes, you can connect that dot. I certainly can. Who are uh, I believe the largest kill shelter in the nation, and almost none of the animals that they take in are adopted out. They just get rid of them. They say no. These they essentially that organization believes that animals shouldn't be pets, and it's it's a whole crazy thing. But you know, seeing that there are organizations out there like the Wounded Paw Project and others that are trying to do great things to help the dogs that are out there. And in the case of the Wounded Paw Project, help the veteran community. Absolutely. Greg, what have you gotten as far as feedback from the veteran community and from, you know, your fellow sailors who heard about what you were doing? It's tremendous. I mean, when you talk about lives saved, it's, uh, and and you've probably seen the stickers, who saved who, um, because the animals are doing a tremendous job. And one of the reasons why I'm so proud of being aligned with the Wounded Paw Project is that veterans are receiving the dogs quickly. Most of the organizations, one like I just previously left, it was taking a couple of years. And these are veterans who need that help now. And the problem we have on top of not only euthanizing dogs is, of course, and cats and every other animal out there, is that we're losing veterans at an unbelievable rate due to suicide. And, uh, you know, whether the number is 22 a day or if it's one a day, it's too many. And the dogs can mitigate that. And in so doing, we're doing a great service for the animals, bringing them into their lives, changing uh, the veteran's life at the same time. And now, as a society, we benefit from that. Because the indigency, the abuse of the opioids, uh, boosting their drugs with alcohol or illicit, illicit drugs, all of those things that come downstream of that, if we get the dog in there in time, we can change that. We can break that cycle. And it's important to break that cycle, and the Wounded Paw Project is certainly doing their part to try and address it. We've been speaking with co-founder and CEO of the Wounded Paw Project, Ernesto Hernandez, and Executive Director Greg Sippel, Air Force and Navy veterans, respectively. Now, Ernesto, we've already said the website once in the, the, the social media accounts, but if people want to find out more about the Wounded Paw Project, if they're interested in trying to help you guys out, join the team, donate, things like that, where can they go to do that? Uh, go to our beta website. Our information is on there, but I'll give you my personal cell. It's 703-503-9449 or send us an email at info at woundedpawproject.org or as you mentioned earlier, Facebook, Twitter at Saving a Paw. Saving a Paw is the social media account. Woundedpawproject.org is the website. Ernesto just gave you that phone number and their email address. So if this sounds interesting to you, reach out, say hi, see if you can help, see what you can do for them. 
We want to thank you so much for listening to this Thursday edition of The Morning Briefing. Coming up tomorrow, Pets for Vets. We're going back-to-back dog days here. The dog days of January, I guess you could call them. (laughs) And also be sure to check out ConnectingVets.com. And we are on social media at ConnectingVets on all the big platforms. Morning Briefing, have a great day. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 